right. Hello. Welcome to Doomer Optimism. I'm um I'm here today with Gord McGill and Ashley Frawley. Um, I'm super excited about this conversation. Um, Gord and I basically became friends this summer, and I've been wanting to have him on. He's got so much interesting stuff going on. And then um, Gord and I were talking, and I was like, you know, basically, like, what happened to old school leftism? And he was like, you need to meet Ashley Frawley. She's so great. She's going to have great opinions on this topic. Um, so I just figured we'd get together kind of um, just have a conversation typically about, or generally about the idea of like what has happened to the left, um, what has it transformed into, uh, where can any of this former energy that motivated some of this, you know, older school leftist ideas, where can it find a home now, this kind of stuff. Um, so just let's have you both briefly introduce yourselves for those of our listeners who don't know you, and then we'll, you know, get going. Gord was about to um, go on a rant, but we stopped him and made, made it. <laughs> um, I was ready to listen to that. Yeah. Uh, lady, ladies first, Ashley Squared, go ahead. <laughs> um, so I'm Dr. Ashley Farale. I'm a sociologist. I was associate professor of criminology, sociology, and social policy at Swansea University for 10 years. I just left that position, and now I'm at the University of Kent. I'm also a visiting researcher at MCC Brussels. And um, I'm a columnist at Compact Magazine, and I am COO of Sublation Press. So mm. lots going on, and I I tend to be quite politically ambiguous, as you can tell. Like Sublation Press is very much like a Marxist publication. MCC Brussels is conservative, <laughs> um, and so yeah, I I I tend to kind of focus on ideas more than political labels. And I find kind of the reversal of some political labels very interesting. Mm, perfect. Gord? Uh, good day, everybody. Uh, I'm Gord. You might have heard my voice either crackling across a VHF <laughs> in the far north of Canada, uh, driving across a frozen lake, or perhaps you heard it on Ashley's YouTube show, of which I've been a guest a couple times, or uh, my own podcast, Voice of Gord. Uh, much like Ashley Frawley, I'm also Canadian. My family is from very near to where her family is in central Ontario. I've been a trucker my whole life, uh, 27 years uh, on the road across four different countries. Um, I was begged by many people in my life to write and journal when I was younger, and I ignored them and didn't bother. Uh, and then the Freedom Convoy happened, and I've been doing nothing but writing ever since. Mm -hmm. uh, much like Dr. Frawley, I'm also uh, a, a contributor. I'm not an editor. I'm just a contributor at Compact. I've written for Newsweek, The American Conservative, uh, Unheard, American Affairs Journal, uh, American Compass, who just gave me a grant that I'm writing a series of essays for. Nice. I also have a wife and two young children who are, uh, you know, the light of my world and give me uh, a reason to get out of bed every day because now the trucking industry is in a shambles, which is something else I write about. Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and most recently um, on a little program you might've heard of uh, Tucker Carlson. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. I, well I, done. I, I was invited to uh, an in-person interview with Tucker Carlson at his uh, cabin studio in Maine. Yeah, uh, I drove through a snowstorm to get there because God likes to play tricks on us sometimes. And um, 
He is every bit in person off camera as he is on. There's nothing fake about that guy. What you see is what you get. And um, for those people who hate him or think he's a bad actor, I don't care. I got to speak with Hunt, uh, Tucker about uh, a situation involving political prisoners in a modern Western democracy. And Mr. Carlson understands the import of such a thing actually taking place in 2023, 24, and invited me on his show. So I accepted the invite. And if you don't like it, too bad. Yeah. Okay. So actually, this is a good place to start because the politically homeless thing, you have to navigate. If you're not willing to go in on one team in, you know, clearly follow all the rules of one team, you're always having to navigate like these kinds of questions. Like, are you now tainted for having gone on Tucker Carlson? How do people who are on the left, who are your friends, um, think about that appearance? Does it make them think less of you? Do you know? But it's an amazing platform, um, and it's a really important issue. And this is a great opportunity to do that. Um, I remember when I was quoted in James Pogue's. Um, New York Times piece about Thomas Massey. And my quote was like the most innocuous thing you can imagine. It was just like, you know, a lot of people are interested in getting more connected to their place and um, knowing where their food comes from. And Massey kind of represents that. I got a bunch of um, uh, messages from liberal family members who were like, do you know that Thomas Massey's Christmas card, his whole family was holding guns? Okay. <laughs> okay, but like, does that undermine like the point that I was making that there's like a maybe something that um, is more universal than these silly culture war things um, that we could consider? So maybe let's start with that, Gord, and then um, then we'll s see if Ashley's also had some similar experiences. Yeah. So as I was mentioning pre-recording, I'm, you know, I, I guess I would, my best description is that I'm politically homeless. Uh, I lean libertarian, but I also lean populist. Um, I was a member of the Green Party of Canada at one time in my uh, misdirected and misspent youth. Um, so before I went on Tucker, a couple of years ago when the Freedom Convoy was happening in Canada, I I took another invitation to speak on a contentious figures show, uh, that being Laura Ingraham at Fox News. Mm. And she'd seen my writing in Newsweek uh, defending the Freedom Convoy and pointing out all of the lies of the Trudeau regime. Asked me to come on her show. I was on it for all of five minutes. She did most of the talking. And within 36 hours of that appearance, uh, my Twitter account was suspended and one of my oldest best friends who self-identifies as a leftist, um, you know, her common-law husband has a photo of Che Guevara on the wall of their living room, um, that kind of family. Yeah. Uh, she texted me to say, don't ever talk to me again. I don't know who you are anymore. No, no debate. No. How did you get in Newsweek? How the hell did you get on Fox News? Why right. do you support the Freedom Convoy? Like, no questions. Just get out. And in the ensuing two years, well, really not even Freedom Convoy, but since like the COVID regime, um, a lot of my former friends have just stopped talking to me, uh, members of my family. And um, most of those people were on the left or adjacent to it or kind of mushy middle types, um, or maybe even like 
po politically uh, agnostic, but like, you know, are normies that believe what the CBC tells them. Yeah. And like no curiosity, no picking up the phone to say, holy cow, man, how did you pull off all these writing gigs? Why did you support the Freedom Convoy? I thought all those guys were right-wing Nazis. Like, <laughs> let's talk about this. Right. No, no discourse, no discussion. They've just like, they've just turned their brains off. And I'm not saying like everybody on the left has done this. You know, a lot of my friends are leftists, you know, like Dr. Frawley here and a few other people, and that's fine. But like at least have the conversation. Somewhere along the way, we got polarized so badly that even talking to somebody who talked to somebody else that's like in the no-go zone means that you're a bad person. And I, I'm still trying to figure out why that is. Yeah. Ashley, you have some similar experiences? Yeah, I mean, uh, I I generally think like if you if you're gonna turn down opportunities like that, you obviously don't care about the issues you claim to care about. You care about yourself and how you look online. Yeah. That's that's just it. Like if you're passionate about something, you want people to listen to you. You want to convince people and you believe that you can. I get frustrated when I can't convince people. I go home, I read more, I think more, and I come back and I try harder the next time. <laughs> Sometimes maybe I realize I'm wrong and I abandon my position. But, you know, I I believe that what I'm, you know, after many, many years of, of thinking about the things that I argue about and that I talk about in the public sphere, I think I'm right, you know? And I've I've thought about it from every angle and, and through the process of debate, you know, I've heard the counter argument convince me sometimes they do it depends on the issue and I've come to a position that I think is a strong one and so I will go anywhere and I will talk to anyone who will listen because it matters it matters a lot um and if I was just out there trying to build my CV I might be like oh no I'm not going to talk to you but that would that that would just be it I would just be a careerist and I think that's what a lot of people are and I think that that also explains some of this this polarization um, that everyone is just out there denouncing each other and backbiting because politics is about CV building, you know, it, like especially amongst millennials. You've we've grown millennials and people younger than us. Like we've grown up with this idea, like oh, watch out what you do online. You know, your employer's gonna Google you, and so you curate this little this public image where you say all the right things and you hold all the right positions and you put your pronouns in your bio, mm -hmm. and you're like, please, please pick me, pick me. And and like you're and you you wear your little badges and your flags or whatever to to show what a good person you are. You have your little pristine image. Look, nobody comes out of anything clean, all right? We we've all got dirt on our on our hands. Uh, and, and you know, but this it's this idea of like putting forward this perfect persona that has no purpose except to look good to your chums and maybe signal to employers, look, I'm I'm one of the good ones. I'm not part of the great unwashed. I'm a manager. I'm not here to be managed. That's mm -hmm. that's it, you know. Yeah. Um, but also around this idea of like following all the rules. If you don't follow all the rules of your little sect, then you get denounced. But the rules aren't even coherent. Right. That's the thing that annoys me. Like if you what does the left mean now? It's like a particular affective orientation. It's like I am a good, caring person. I'm nice. So anything caring and nice gets a free pass, which is horrific. Because obviously any kind of issue or policy gets framed in the most uncontroversial way possible. That, that's, that's how you get something on the public agenda. That's how you affect policy. 
you have to package your your claims in totally uncontroversial terms, in terms you know where only a a, a mean evil person would uh, uh, question these sorts of things. And as a critical thinker, you have to say, well, that's kind of what they're doing, and you have to have the confidence to argue against things that are bad, even when they're framed as unambiguously good. Mm -hmm. But because the left has no foundation anymore, no principles, it's just like, if it sounds nice, must be nice. If you are, if you question it, you must be horrible. You must be in the pay of Vladimir Putin or whatever it is on that particular day. And I, and I, I, you know, it used to, and I think it's got worse recently. Like it used to be that I could kind of have an argument with somebody online you know, on Twitter or something like that, let's say like a video of mine clip has gone viral and I'm getting a lot of flack. You know, I'd pour myself a glass of wine and just go ahead trying to convince people and I would bring it. And eventually, you know, we could, I could convince people or we could agree to disagree. Uh, Recently, I tried to do that on a particular topic and it was so absurd and over the top. And I just got called a see you next Tuesday over and over and over again. And it got like, it was so personal. And I was like, all I wanted to convince a person of, for instance, on one of these threads, and I was just amazed that I, I, I was like, you won't even give this, was I have taken a position because looking at it, I thought this is probably incorrect. And here's what I think is the truth. And there was evidence on that side. And his position was, you are a bitch. <laughs> why you've taken that you're just a cynical bitch that's it you're just a cynical bitch and that's why you've taken this position yeah uh, and I was like can I just show you like there's reasons to take this he wouldn't accept it he would not accept anything except that I was purely cynical and well, was just totally mad yeah. can, that's, I add that's an an- now. can I add an anecdote to this that I think might be uh relevant and illustrative of Ashley's point here um I was so I'm working with this guy uh, he just finished his master's degree at Syracuse University uh, in photojournalism, and he's been documenting uh, those workers thought to be displaced by the sort of new wave of automation, fourth industrial revolution, all these questions. And there's a there's a really popular podcast out there called it's like a it's like one of these sort of history nerd podcasts called Industrial Revolutions, and it's quite good. Um, the host is excellent uh, in a way. But anyway, uh, my guy James at Syracuse University emails the host of Industrial Revolutions and says, hey, me and this Gord guy who's a trucker are working on various podcasts and writing projects examining the displacement or the uh, coming displacement of of truckers by automated truck technology. And so this Industrial Revolutions guy emails us back and says, man, I can't wait to talk to you guys. This sounds great. Totally in. 24 hours before our agreed upon recording date, which we had like, we had agreed upon several months previous, I get an email from the host of Industrial Revolutions podcast. And he says, I'm sorry, I can't come on your show. You're an anti-vaxxer and appearing on your show would damage my reputation. And I have a fundamental disagreement with your, your worldview and I probably shouldn't talk to you. Now... The best part is I don't talk about vaccines on my podcast at all. Yeah. That's not my purview. I don't know anything about them and I don't care. Yeah. He just went through my list of stuff, saw that I defended the freedom convoy. And then a switch went off in his brain that said, 
The media tells me he's an anti-vaxxer and he's a bad guy. I'm not coming on his podcast now to discuss autonomous vehicle technology, which has nothing to do with vaccines, right? So, and it gets better. I go look this guy up. I do a little digging. He's got his own personal website. I used to work in Democratic Party politics for 10 years. Wow. What a fucking surprise. Thank you very much. All right, carry on. Sorry. Um, okay. Uh, so, exactly yeah, it, yeah. No. So, okay. There, let's dig into um, some of the details on um, like what parts of the original leftist ideology maybe you resonated with or still resonate with. And I just have a little rant to go on because I've been thinking about this a lot recently. Um, so I don't know if you know, Ashley, but my family, I have three little girls and we just moved from Uruguay and South America back to Chicago where we're from. And I'm, I've enrolled my two older, all, the, all three of them, the littlest ones in preschool, the two older ones in Chicago public schools. And I was like, okay, we're going like, this is the belly of the beast. Like, what are they going to learn? Oh my God, I'm scared. But like, are we going to do this? We're going to take advantage. These are great. Like they are, they, they're great on, you know, the core curriculum education stuff. And so um, before we left, I said, there are three topic areas that you, that I need to talk to the girls about. The three areas are uh, the environment, uh, race and gender. And I was basically like, um, there uh, for okay, I'll just go through these briefly on the environment. Like there are actually environmental issues to care about. Are you going to die within the decade of climate change? No, but there are children who are being taught like it is so dire that they have like climate anxiety and all of this stuff. I'm like, so you know, there is it, it does matter to care about the environment. You don't need to go overboard with it to the point that you like are so depressed you're suicidal. That like that's just kind of an obvious thing, but it's it's weird because there is a real issue there, and then they take it and the the modern left has turned it into like a really unhealthy thing. Race is the second issue. Yes, there are like historical and present inequalities between races. Does that mean that you, as like a young white girl, are inherently racist and should feel guilty? No. So I had to talk to him about that. And then the third one is the gender stuff. It's like, should we be tolerant of, you know, our family member? One of my cousins is uh, lesbian, married to a woman. Yes, we should be tolerant of that. That's that's great and fine. D should we just assume it's normal to be born in the wrong body and take puberty blockers your whole childhood? No, that's absurd. <laughs> so I'm like talking to him about this, like, you know, you got to pull apart these issues like there are there's a kernel of truth in there of tolerance and and uh, equality and, um, you know, concern for the, the less well off. Um, but what it's morphed into um, those those kernels have really been like erased, basically, or overcome to the point that you like have lost the core concern there and turned it into like this authoritarian, strange, unhealthy um, you know, groupthink activity. So, okay. So now I've gotten my little piece. I'm curious if one of you want to go and talk a little bit about, um, yeah, what, what parts of the original leftism you still resonate with? I'm going to demur to Dr. Frawley. Um, I, I think because on one of these questions, she has some intimate connection given her, uh, ethnic background in Canada. Yeah, I mean, I, the 
the, the, the whole thing about like teaching people that they're historical victims and all this sort of thing really annoys me because it's profoundly racist, <laughs> profoundly racist. And I, I have written about this, published a paper, gosh, four years ago now. Uh, you can have a look at it on my research gate. It's in French, but there's an English version there as well. And I, you know, it, it, it's, I've seen this happen many, many times, but it really bothered me years and years and years ago. After I finished my PhD, I went to a conference in Ottawa and it was on like First Nations information governance. Um, I'm Indigenous, obviously. I don't know if I mentioned that. And uh, I went with my aunt, who's been like a, an activist in Indigenous issues for many years. And uh, she was like, this is great. Everything's great. Though they're, they're like, there's so much deference and respect for us. And I was like, these people are making fun of us. Yeah. You know, these yeah. these people think there's something wrong with us. We're damaged. We're damaged goods. And they need to manage us to control the risks, control the fallout. That's what they're doing here. So the, the whole conference was about us sort of um, taking control of, of information. Because, you know, everybody who wants to do a, a master's or a PhD, they go onto a reserve and they study Indigenous people. And just people are done with it. They're, they're sick of it. Like, what, whatever happens to any of this information? Right. You know, right. You, you go get your master's, you go get your PhD. What do we get? Nothing. Yeah. You know, we get to be your, your guinea pig. So we want to control this information. I thought, that's great. <laughs> I go to each session and it's all about what can we do to get around this? <laughs> and like, so or like, they're like indigenous people are, are, are um, suspicious of social workers for good reason. Right. That our kids have been taken away for like, generations right it's terrible and we're under a ton of surveillance all the time and we obviously have problems but i think these problems come from poverty the same kind of problems you have all over the place where, where people are poor yeah uh but they're like uh okay they're they're suspicious of outsiders so uh well what can we do to get around this well you got to go to the grandparents you got to go you know this incredible and they're trying to like get to the children to kind of like try and rehabilitate them and control their behavior and all these sorts of things and they, they just had an extremely low view of indigenous people as necessarily victims of the past so that's what kind of cued me into there's something wrong here yeah but so I, I i did a study where i looked i gathered all these documents that were being used are being used to like educate health professionals about indigenous people around canada and they're like, they, they say the problems that we have are down to colonization. And colonization disrupted the sacred role of motherhood and in indigenous people. And, and what we need to do is we need to give people back their culture. Guess what giving back their culture is? It's mainstream parenting culture, which I've been studying for like over a decade, packaged with some turtles and feathers. Like, hey, this is what you would have done if the evil, mean colonizers didn't come and stop you from learning how to raise your children. You would, you would be exactly as mainstream policymakers think mothers should be and problematize motherhood generally for yeah. everybody. Yeah. You would be that perfect ideal if only the colonizer didn't come. And, it, and it's like completely ethnographically, anthropologically backward and stupid because like, for instance, almost every culture in the world uses some form of corporal punishment. Like they they smack the kids somehow. <laughs> That's a, it's hard to socialize children. Every single culture uses some form of threat of violence. I'm sorry, but they do. It's effective. Uh, animals do it too, by the way. Uh, and but you know cultures are pretty careful about how they do it. Um, and so in a lot of indigenous cultures in North America, they use a third party corporate corporal punishment. So like a whipping man hmm. would come through and like 
beat the kids indiscriminately. And then throughout the rest of the year, you'd be like, ah, don't do that. Yeah. It doesn't mean you beat the kids all the time. It's just the threat of violence. <laughs> shouldn't laugh. It's really bad. But um, but the, they are like, oh, you know, Indigenous people never use corporal punishment for the spirit of the child required gentleness. Do you know this like incredibly romanticized language? So they view the Indigenous person as like a noble savage, mm. right? would be wonderful and perfect in every way if only the evil white man didn't come and destroy them or they view them as an indigenous victim anyways so um and what they are saying at the end of the day is the problems that you have and they, this is fairly explicit the problems that indigenous people have are down to bad parenting yes it's under like five different layers of like oh colonization did this and it disrupted things but they are saying you can't raise your children properly that's what they're saying and that's what they have always said. They've always said that. They said that's why they've put kids in residential schools mm -hmm. because the indigenous mother cannot produce a good liberal citizen. That's why they put, um, that's why we had the 60s scoop of social workers because the indigenous mother can't raise a good liberal citizen. Mm -hmm. Now it's the same thing, but the, the, the blame is on, oh, we're so sorry, it's our fault. But now we truly do need to take your children away. <laughs> Scientifically, science says so. Yeah. And they're taking away tons and tons of kids. Anyway, so it is incredibly racist and insulting, and it repeats those old racist tropes through a kind, benevolent rhetoric. And another, I wrote about this for Compact, so I'm going on a bit, I'll, I'll shut up, but I wrote about this for Compact, where um, I was just writing about something, I was reviewing the literature, and I noticed, I was reading this critical race theorist paper, and she goes, she says, black, oh, because of the legacy of colonization and, and, um, and, um, and slavery, and an ongoing structural racism, black people experience social, emotional, and cognitive impairments that lead them to uh, do less well in school. Did you hear that? It's under 10 different layers, but what did they just say? Black people are cognitively impaired. Right. Black, that's what they're saying. Black people are cognitively impaired. That's what the fucking racist said. That's what that was, that was scientific racism. Yeah. You, you, their inequality exists because you are cognitively impaired. Now, the cause of it is social, they say. But at the end of the day, they are still saying there's something between your ears. That's the problem. Yeah. And, and of course, the like the elephant in the room is poverty. You don't do well in school because you're fucking poor and right. your life is shit, right? And it's just not that important. That winds up not being that important. All sorts of reasons. But it's not because you're cognitively fucking impaired. But it's incredibly racist incredibly racist so the the this like where's the anchor i don't think these people are leftists i don't think these people are leftists because where do i see myself what kind of ideology leftist ideology resonates with me yeah. classical Marxism, orthodox marxism which believes in a universal human subject that i can convince you of something because you are a human just like i am uh there's nothing you know, special about, and people will always misunderstand Marxism as saying like workers have, are like special and good. They're not, they're not necessarily special and good. They're just the one subject in society that is capable of moving forward for particular reasons. Not because they're good people or something like that. No, they can have all sorts of prejudices. <laughs> um, but like, it, it is fundamentally a universalist doctrine. It's not about like something deep down in my, my biology or whatever it might be. Um, and so I think actually what counts as the left, what stands as the left now, 
is uh, stems from what used to be the right. Like if you go back to the French Revolution, left versus right, um, the right was reacting to the Enlightenment. I see Marxism as a continuation and a fruition of the Enlightenment. And but the right was saying we've gone too far. We don't want to go back. The uh, that capitalism, the Enlightenment, industrialization, it has destroyed the individual. It has destroyed the unique spirit of the people. We need to emphasize the Volksgeist. You, uh, no prizes for guessing where we wound up with that. You know, you had like a lefty version of it, like on the right side, a lefty version of it, which is like celebrating community and all this stuff. And on the right side, you had scientific racism right. and eugenics, right? That there was something unique to the spirit of the people that made different races different, fundamentally different from each other. They they reacted against the Enlightenment belief of universal humanity. They said no, something that and you know the the right wing of it said, and that inequality stems from something within the human being, and it's always going to be with us. Mm-hmm. And the problems we have are down to something intrinsic to human groups. Okay, that's the fucking right. All right, that's now these people who call themselves leftists, they're not leftists. They're not. And uh, somehow the political spectrum has flipped upside down, flipped sideways, whatever. And and now I find myself on the right because I believe in the Enlightenment. Sorry, that was a very long lecture. No, that's good. <laughs> um, I'm, you know, I, I've been on a weird sort of philosophical, spiritual journey that's been... Uh, with me my whole life, I again, you know, I'm I, I consider myself politically homeless because there's sort of good ideas everywhere, and you know, in places they intersect, that's usually where you'll find me, or like at least I'll consider it. Um, as you know, Ashley, you know, we met at this front porch republic thing in Wisconsin last year, and um, you know, I, I became acquainted with the ideas of Paul Kingsnorth and yourselves and FPR. And I, I, I've just, I'm going to make this very personal. Okay. You know, I think a little bit of what Ashley was saying there was personal because of her heritage and various things she's seen in her research. But, you know, the only reason I'm here is I somehow got famous for defending the Freedom Convoy and having some kind of a voice people wanted to listen to. In doing that, I've come to find out, like, who, like, my sort of clear-sighted, clear-eyed friends really are, mm-hmm. and people who I used to think of as enemies. Um, when I was younger, I was a pretty strident atheist, and there's a lot of crossover between atheism and leftism. Um Make of that what you will. It just is what it is. And um, in what's happened to Western society under the various COVID regimes, which, oddly enough, all kind of look the same and all appeared to be directed by people who were outside the realms of democratic accountability. You know, some people might call that globalism, you know, as manifested by the WEF, whatever. Um, But that's not a conspiracy theory that Justin Trudeau, Joe Biden, Jacinda Ardern, you know, um, everybody in Europe, we're all playing by the same book, right? Mm. And in the reaction to that as manifested in Canada and the Freedom Convoy, I came to find that the, the people who I would have considered antagonists as a younger man came to my defense. And we're fellow travelers. 
uh, Christians, people of faith, um, you know, people who are pretty far outright, like further right than I would even be comfortable with, were all of a sudden like, yeah, dude, you're doing great. You're on the right path. You're doing the right thing. Where were all my former leftist friends and atheists and secular friends? They either ignored me or attacked me. So, you know, when the chips are down, when it really matters, when, you know, the house is on fire and you have to get people out of it, um, where were the people of action, so to speak? Yeah. I saw very few of them from the left, uh, present company excluded. And then other guys like James Smith from the popular podcast, um, Layla Machui from uh, Compact and a few other what I like to call honest leftists. Um, the, the rest of them were gone. They basically bought the COVID thing, hook, line and sinker. They're in their own little corner of the boxing ring. And I, I again, I'm still trying to figure out why they all of a sudden allowed authoritarianism to take hold of their minds and hearts and to believe that it was necessary and that to believe that discussion or discourse about what was actually going on and why people thought and felt the way they did was like somehow toxic and, you know, to be disbarred. And I, I, I still haven't figured it out. Yeah. Um, so, okay. I want to um, draw together some themes. I hear you guys both talking about um, one thing I've been thinking a lot about recently is um, I think less about the left and right and more, about maybe like um, top down or bottom up or something like that. And so um, when you were talking, Ashley, I was thinking about the story of how, I guess like the professional managerial class is interacting with the indigenous communities in, in Canada. And I'm thinking it's really, um, the difference is really or the modern left. It's it's a way of knowing that is centers like the bureaucratic state managerialism and uses that um, certain kind of. I, I have this term that I like to use: spreadsheet brain. Spreadsheet brain way of thinking about people like they're not people; they are a statistic that then needs to be uh, solved via managerial authoritarianism and so the same thing is true with covid stuff like there's no humanity in the thinking about how covid played out it's just you know we've got statistics and then we're health professionals so we'll just straight up lie to you because the statistics are telling us like people will panic if we don't just lie i mean i remember at the beginning of the covid um uh pandemic people the 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 party line was don't wear masks, don't wear masks. But it was just like, because they didn't want to have mask shortages in hospitals. And then it was like, oh, wait, no, do wear masks. And it's like, oh, so, sorry, we just don't know. It's like, you know, they're obviously just lying to people and they're just okay with this sort of like managerial bureaucratic state. And it's really fundamentally like um, this kind of way of knowing that's about numbers on a page versus like the material world. And by material world, I mean like, the actual environment, people who are actually stewarding it, populist thinking, like what do regular people think and feel um, in their context, in their culture, respecting that, um, as opposed to the sort of flattening like managerial state. And then the other thing, um, and 
the solution is always, and I was thinking about what you were saying, Ashley, about like po eradicating poverty. Poverty is the, the cause of a lot of these uh, inequalities, but but the solution put forth is like words. It's just, let's say nicer things. Yeah. And I remember during 2020, <laughs> it was like, it was like, it was like. But the thing is, though, Ashley, they don't actually say nice things. I know, and it's not even nice. Like, and, it, and a lot of times, yeah, they like some thing, like, like, for example, the one of the funnier things is like Latinx. Which is like, okay, let's say Latinx now. And then that is definitely going to like make Latino people feel uh, more included. And of course, the only people who like glom onto this new terminology are activist, educated, themselves professional managerial class Latinos. And then you go to regular people and they're like, what the hell? Um, and it was so funny. There was this newsletter that came out, some school newsletter, and it was like they wrote Latinx in the English language newsletter, but they wrote Latino in the Spanish one because it's like, yeah, to the to the actual Latino parents, they just wrote Latino because it's like, yeah, we're, we're not going to use Latino. It's just one of those yeah. things where it's like, it's so obvious that solutions are just words. Nobody's trying to get to the under, and this is where I'm like Marxist in, in influence. Like no one's trying to get to the underlying material reality, material conditions that are actually causing these things. It's just like, you know, putting words on it, more regulations, you know, challenge their parenting via the bureaucratic managerial state. I can I can bring an example of exactly what you're saying from my own industry. And this is the sort of central theses of these articles I'm writing for American Compass and a lot of my previous work is that the trucking industry has got all of these problems, which are all built on top of a base problem which is both economic and human and social in a way, right? So the trucking industry is supposed to move things from point A to point B for whatever customer. And because of the sort of like, you know, capitalist drive to get it done as cheaply as possible, they want to mask problems that are created by the drive to do things as cheaply as possible <laughs> and or um, externalize the costs associated with those problems on other people that are not the trucking industry, right? So for in 1980, the trucking industry was deregulated, but I think that, that term is incorrect. There was a transfer of regulation. So they opened up the market to basically anybody. They took away like price controls, uh, lane authorities. There was all this stuff that could control who the market entrants were and the prices they could charge. Now, one could argue that paradigm needed some tuning, um, but they just got rid of it completely. And then what happened? Anybody could get into trucking, prices fell, driver's wages fell, and that still hasn't recovered And it's 2024. It's 44 years later, and the industry is still facing all of the same problems that were created downstream of that opening of the market now, again, you know, I, I do lean libertarian and I, I believe in open markets. But the problem was, is that the market was not encouraged to fix its own problems. So when all of the wages went down and the working conditions got worse, a lot of truck drivers made the natural choice to exit. Right. All right, we're out of here. And then we had what's called the driver shortage. Well, that's turned into a narrative because they've never fixed that problem 
by adjusting the wages and material conditions. What they've done is they've created this whole system of CDL schools where basically they sweep what Marx referred to as the lumpen proletariat off the street and said, you guys should be truck drivers. It's not that way. Trucking is a skilled thing and it has a lot of stuff. There's, there's a lot of things involved with being a trucker that are imperceptible to those with spreadsheet brain, right? It requires things that are not measurable, a yeah. certain kind of work ethic, a drive to do it. These are things that are intrinsic to people's personalities and the sort of element of them being human. You can't reduce it to numbers. You can't train it. You can't teach it. You just have to want to do it. That's part of the key to being a good truck driver. That's gone. And they've tried to take the training part of it. To the, the, all these huge trucking companies and smaller ones too have come to the government cap in hand saying, hey, we have a driver shortage problem. They don't ever say it's the downstream problem of the deregulation of the business end of the business. Right. They just say, we don't have enough truck drivers. So they get money from the government to run their truck driving schools. And then they train all these new people. And then those new people realize, wow, this business sucks. And they quit within a year. So they have a constant turnover, but they're not addressing the primary problem, which underlies all of this. You're not paying people enough. You're not trying to solve the problems that are intrinsic to the business that make people quit and you just keep throwing bodies at it. And to top it all off, you're taking the tab for the, those bodies and putting it on the taxpayer. Yeah. So it's like a whole corporate welfare thing, right? Yeah. Like, and, and, and it's because like, like Ashley said, and you said they're not under, they're not addressing the underlying problem. Yeah. Yeah. Ashley. Yeah, part of it is that um, they've accepted the, the, those who call themselves leftists now, if you want to call them like, I, I don't know, the NGO class, the, yeah. the PMC, the whatever, the men of letters. <laughs> uh, they've accepted that there is no alternative. This is just it. Um, we can't really, yeah, they might. Well, if they want to live action role play as, as radicals, they'll say revolution tomorrow or whatever. But at the end of the day, they don't believe in any kind of revolutionary subject. They don't trust parents to raise their own children. They, you, trust, you trust people, adults now, to have a revolution and run the world? I don't. They, they, you know, they, anyway. Um, so they have completely accepted that there is no alternative, that there aren't really any solutions. So when you say the solutions are just words, well, what are the words? First of all, the words that they use uh, have nothing to do with actually solving problems. They are a particular vocabulary that acts as a status marker. Yep. And, and it is a status marker that points to a particular um, space in society that has been created in this situation of alternative. So if you can't actually solve a problem like poverty, which you can't solve, like relative poverty within capitalism, you can't solve that. It's never going to go away. It's just how capitalism works. Um, if you can't solve, and then you have all these problems that come out of that, right? If you can't solve that, well, what do you do? You break it down into a million different things. Say, well, what is poverty anyway? We don't need to give people any more money. And anyway, we don't trust people with money. They're probably going to spend it on junk food. So what do you do? You, you say, well, it's about having bad teeth. It's about being fat. It's about being this. It's about being that. It's about making bad choices. It's about blah, blah, blah. And I can manage each and every one of those things right. for you. You know, I'll I'll lecture your kids about tooth decay. I'll do that. You know? <laughs> and and they said and they set themselves up. I will be the one to do that. 
Right. Or um, or they'll come up with all these fake solutions that they can sell to industry, to businesses, to to like a like indulgences. Here, look, you can buy your way out of the guilt. You can buy your way out of your complicity in this system if you just do this. Buy my DEI thing. Train your workers. And it all, and it's great because it allows the companies to be like, I am not racist. It's my fucking workers that are racist. <laughs> I'm trying here, you know. I, I gave them training. Yeah. But, but, you know, so they're able to fob off responsibility for these sort of broader social problems. And anyways, I mean, they're not personally responsible for these, these sort of structural issues. Um, but they can sell them these kinds of solutions in the form of training programs, in the form of behavior management. Yeah. And what I was saying before about that language, that it sets them up as the managers. Look, listen to the language that I am using. I am a manager. I'm not the one to be managed. And I, this is really <laughs> I've, got, I've got a friend who, <laughs> I, I don't want to talk about it. Like I've been friends with this person since childhood. And uh, she's not particularly intellectual, which is fine. You don't need to be an intellectual. But um, she's always kind of reaching to get into that. She's like a climber. She wants to get into that PMC class. Uh, but she doesn't read. You know, she's not particularly deep thinker or anything. Just as I said, fine. But she's always using this. She, she globs onto this language every now and then. Yeah. And so she's got like pronouns in her bio. And every now and then she'll like, tell, you know, lecture people about gender in a very superficial way. Like I literally read about this on Twitter once kind right. of thing. Right. And what what is she doing? Yeah. Well, interestingly, in her life, she she like she tried to go to university. She flunked out, um, and so she wound up going to college. And but she's she's trying to get into these kinds of management sort of behavior, social kind of NGO work, this sort of thing. And she keeps getting fired. She keeps getting thrown out, right? And she's like, I don't want to be thrown down into the proletariat. I am better than that. I oh, am. Man. I am not the one to be managed. Look, I got pronouns in my bio. I don't belong in Amazon. I belong on your like HR committee on Amazon. Right. <laughs> Amazon you know. So that's a, that's an example of how that kind of language functions. Yeah. If, that if, kind if of acts I, as a marker. If yeah. I may, uh, Dr. Frawley, to add to what you're saying here, like this sort of like management thing and to add to my previous anecdote. So, so this problem of like driver churn, constantly hiring new people, you sort of plumb the depths of various quality levels of people who may not, you know, make the best people out on the road. And then they get in accidents, they speed, they do dumb stuff. And so that instigates a new layer of management and new layers of surveillance technology. So like much as, you know, um, our native friends in Canada are surveilled by the native bureaucracy and the government, and they're just treated like children. You see this with like wide segments of the working class who you know, because they're not, you don't pay people properly. So you don't get the kind of quality people you have. And then people are left with no choice to either become strivers or go do gig stuff. So they don't have to subject themselves to this. And it be, kind of becomes this weird catch 22 where all of these like managers and policies and surveillance are making the workplace a really, really bad place to be that nobody wants to be there. And then they end up getting worse and worse or like lower quality type of people or people who don't care that are just in it for the paycheck. And it just, it just becomes like this Ouroboros. It's like a snake eating itself. And then the quality of everything goes to crap. Mm. Right. And things don't get done. And like people like me who've been in the business my entire life, I don't want to be anywhere near a truck right now under 
the surveillance technology and under the managers above me. Like, who the hell wants to be surveilled and managed on the job? This isn't just like a uh, an identity thing or certain populations thing. Like, this is now in the entire working class. Like, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I, what you're saying, it sounds like, um, it reminds me, I took these uh, sociology of the family classes in grad school, and it's like, um, poor families then get routed into this like managerial um, all these hoops that they have to jump over and it's like it's basically they're just being punished for being poor that like the the bureaucrats are making uh, are making policy decisions that make you poor and then you're being punished on top of that so it's like the bureaucrats are, are destroying the trucking industry and then you're being punished for their bad policies by being surveilled like it's your fault actually but it's like you know, fundamentally, it's just this constant beating down of a certain class um, through these these mechanisms. Um, I want to one thing you guys were talking about reminds me of my general field is, you know, food and agriculture. There's something similar going on with farmers like farmers are the um, are the main land stewards in, you know, in most of the developed world. They're the ones who are actually interacting with the landscapes. Um, and yet they're punished basically for being farmers for just doing things according to the economic system we currently have um and then there's this thing where um they're they're like the environmentalists are sort of uh coming up with all these technocratic solutions and farmers are considered like the enemy even though they're the main ones who are like stewarding landscapes at all um and i remember i got into it my specific Thing that just drives me crazy with the left now is that everything is about climate change, which is a total spreadsheet brain way of thinking about the environment and makes it so that when you're thinking about climate change as the problem, your solutions end up being like these spreadsheet brained global, you know, mandates on diet, mandates on uh, farming practices, but, you know, fining farmers for just trying to to you know turn a profit in the emphasis emphasis on the mandate emphasis yeah. on the force yeah. rather than negotiation or trying to work it out some other way and it's totally top down it makes no sense people are constantly being squeezed they don't know what to do about it um and then you go and talk to actual farmers and it's like these people have the most robust ecological ethic out there because they're the ones actually having to interact with landscapes all day and think about how do i keep this soil from totally washing away completely so that I can't farm anymore. You know, they're the ones who are actually thinking about those problems. But um, so, yeah, there's this like dichotomy. Um, one other thing I just wanted to mention is you guys. Probably... Oh, well, if I could just add it. Oh, yeah, yeah, like, go, that's go ahead. the most Marxist thing ever. Like this idea that like because you are a worker and you work solving the problems every day, that's why you should control it. Mm. Like you, by virtue of being a human being existing in the world, in confronting its problems, this puts you in the best position. So farmers would be in the best position to solve these problems because they solve them every day. Mm -hmm. That's what they do. Right. Uh, and yet it's so funny because that then gets the opposite of that gets sold to you as the leftist position. <laughs> I know it's literally the opposite. Which and is they that will we like in a city sitting here with our spreadsheets know better how to farm than the farmers. And then they ma mandate these things that make no sense. The people yeah, the so they've they've learned nothing from the Soviet Union. You know what I mean? It's like 
like that system failed for a reason. And if you want to be a Marxist, you should understand that we are we do empirical work. Like we look at the world, we understand its problems, and then we try again. You don't just be like, oh, what's socialism? Isn't that when you like fucking destroy all um, freedoms and <laughs> mandate like um, conformity and have five-year plans? Yeah, that system failed for a reason, okay? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway. Um, so I was going to say one other, just like this, 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 um, insight is just totally vibes, but the other thing, um, Gord was saying earlier about like, you know, who kind of shows up when, um, when the shit hits the fan or when, when things start to like, you know, get difficult. Um, and I think one thing I've just been, um, reacting to is like, a lot of my former leftist friends um, or friends, you know, who are not, they're not my former friends, they're leftists. They're just like, um, they're humorless. And there's something to that, which is you have to conform with these certain types of words and thinking. Um, and to me, like, it's just no way to live life or have a friendship that's fun or interesting. And it also is really, um, hard to navigate like neighborliness for example or like a small town not even a small town community i mean i live in chicago and you have to have a lot of tolerance to um accept some measure of difference but some measure of difference is also like a really wonderful part of life like it's great i mean my dad um my dad has a friend um who's a painter and he's helped us paint our house recently and he's like you know, the most schizo guy, like he just, he, it's uh, demons, angels, the Rothschilds, um, oh you know, he should, he needs to get on Twitter because he would fit right in, but it's like, you know, the, there's like Bohemian Grove and um, aliens are actually like demons and they, like there's underwater civilizations, all this stuff. And I'm like, this is great. Like, and I'm, sh and we're just talking about stuff. And I think he was like, so grateful to have somebody he could just like talk to. Um, it was not just like you're crazy um but I don't know like there's just such a great like joy in openness difference um hearing people out like and I don't have to agree um but like it's okay to just have conversations with people and have fun and make jokes like I don't know I just feel like there's just a a lack of humor and then the the human element of like showing up for people mm -hmm. you know despite them being maybe like icky or painted in on the wrong team like you know yeah my brother's the same way like he sees that there's something wrong in the world but he doesn't have um any kind of narrative to make sense of it because there's no organization like back in the day you know he might have been he's an autodidact that sort of thing he might have been part of like reading groups that they used to organize at factories like i could well imagine that yeah. but now we're just utterly abandoned and you fall into these kind of silos and it's you know, and, and just sort of talking to him and trying to convince him, you know, I learned a lot from him and he learned a lot from me and, and we find some kind of middle ground, but they, nobody wants to convince people. It's just, it, no one, the, the, the idea is no one ever changes their mind. So you got to- Well, the, 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 no one wants to convince people. Like there's two parties involved here, the person trying to persuade someone else and then the other person. And in order to convince them, you have to be given the opportunity in the first place. And quite often, like, it's just shut down. Yeah. You know, I, I had, you know, like, I, I've, I've complained about this on, like, a bunch of podcasts in my writing that, like, 
I've been shut off from certain members of my family. And like, they literally said to me, we don't want to talk about this, Gord. Mm. Just, just don't even tell us. Like, I mean, they literally said it like in emails and uh, well, they didn't even do it on the phone because they know it's hard to say no to somebody. You're having an actual sort of, you can pick up intonation and the nonverbal communication and inflection and tone. Yeah. Like actually talking to somebody on the phone. Here's another thing. I'm going to sound like old man yelling at cloud right now. <laughs> maybe, maybe our leftist friends need to put down the goddamn screens and actually talk to people on the phone or in person. Yeah. Because the, one of the, one of the guilty parties here is like this digital disintermediation between humans mm -hmm. that allows this like shutting down to go on. And as Ashley just said, you know, like, um, reading groups at the factory. Who needs a reading group when you can go hang out in a Facebook thing and like get reinforced everything you believe already or yeah. talk about the fucking Leafs and the Habs, bro? You know, like it's just like I again, old man yelling at cloud, but like we need more human interaction and less digital interaction as I'm talking to you guys on Zoom from many miles <laughs> no, away. We've hung out in person, well, and we will again. You know, um, no, yes, I, we will. Yeah, and I, I think there's something to that too that kind of ties in. Not to make it so theoretical all the time, but like material, the material world includes navigating relationships, like actual mm -hmm. relationships, which are messy. And not, um, you know, a Facebook string of comments or Twitter comments, you know, or um, she, her and the Palestine flag in my bio, like, you know, they're, they're deeper than that. And they require a great deal of nuance and humility. Like, and I think the humility part is really the part that maybe draws us to three together. Like the, the populism comes from humility, like from a like a fundamental sense that I don't know more than you and that we, we might not be equals in every measure, but um, I can give you a fundamental dignity and respect despite disagreeing, I think is like the real difference because the professional managerial class, like Ashley, when you were talking about this conference, it reminds me so much of these environmentalist conferences I go to because my tra my trainings in um, environmental sociology and the question is, is never, how do we listen to indigenous, indigenous, you know, land owners in the global south? How do we listen to farmers? The question is always, how do we manage them? How do we get them to disabuse themselves of their obviously incorrect thinking and behavior? <laughs> you know, yeah, or like give them voice you know, and empower them. And it's always like the policy's already there. Like we just got to put it in their hands, and then they can talk. You know, like how do right, we use them make them think they thought it right? Exactly. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, okay, so um, moving toward the the uh, end of the podcast and wrapping up, like, what what do we do from here? I mean, it seems like my sense of the field is that a lot of people like us um, are are starting to find each other. I do think that there's a, an enormous pressure to not. Um, to not be painted in the wrong light or not be considered on the right team, the wrong team. Like I, I, um, I'm like, you know, I, I don't know the publishing world that well. So if people give me an opportunity, I usually just take it. Um, I don't, I'm not like, well, is this publication left or right? Or what is it? Um, and I have had some people say like, oh, well, you're like in this 
right-wing ghetto now because you published at Unheard or, you know, um, The American Mind or whatever else. Um, and God forbid you get dis, uh, disavowed by a bunch of online lunatics. No, I know, I know. And that's, but, the, but I think that there are people like us who are afraid of like, you know, either their friends or their workplace or their bosses finding out that they're, their secret uh secret um dissidents um so so yeah i just wonder like what do you guys have this same sense like i know of a couple of writers who who are like totally on board with you know populist message listen to farmers blah 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 but are afraid to publish in certain publications because they're like i just don't want to be smeared i'll lose all my credibility that i've built up over the years so anyways, where do we go from here for, for those of us who have this kind of sensibility? Uh, I'm going to, again, demur to Dr. Frawley on this question because I'm an, uh, an outlier case. I have no credibility. <laughs> I barely finished high school. Everything I've done has been through like uh, luck, determination, and just being me. Yeah. And, you know, I'll literally write anything or say anything anywhere. One of the one of the criticisms I've got one of the criticisms I've got from, you know, uh, various interlocutors, including my very own wife and my in-laws, is like, well, why did you talk to Laura Ingraham and why did you talk to Car Tucker Carlson? I didn't get an invite from PBS or NPR or CBC. Right. I would have talked to them. You know, part of the problem is not that you know we need to be afraid of being siloed. Part of the problem is identifying that the siloing is going on and yeah. that, that, that that siloing is beyond our control in a way and it's being perpetrated by other people, right? Yeah. I will I, I would have this exact same conversation on you know a, a CBC show or the NPR and I would tell them the exact same thing and I would talk the exact same way. Yeah. They don't want to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. That's not my fault. That's not your fault. That's not other Ashley's fault. That's not anybody's fault. That's their fault. Right. Yeah. So if we get, if we end up getting like having to face this choice of, you know, oh, this is a right wing ghetto or you're with the dime square people or you're with these people. Well, you take your opportunities where you can get them. But let's remember those silos are built by the people in charge and they maintain who goes in them. Yeah. Yep. That's not my fault. That's not your fault. Right. What you got to do is you got to dye part of your hair purple, trick them into thinking you're woke. And then once you're, <laughs> once the camera's already on, you just go. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, I think um, what you mentioned before about uh, I'm going to lose all of this respect and blah, blah, blah. Like, obviously, people respect people a lot more who are willing to stand up for what they believe in. Yeah. And if you're not willing to do that and, you know, the emperor is walking around naked and everyone's saying, Oh, it's great. Like we all know we're lying. Everybody knows, you know, that's the thing. Like my husband, by the way, barely finished high school <laughs> and he's a very similar kind of guy. And whenever I go out with him and his friends, you know, they're all like builders and that kind of thing. And I start explaining something. He goes, you don't need to explain that to anybody at this table. We already know. Yeah. <laughs> you know? There's nothing that I could explain that he doesn't already know. In fact, love to huge, see it. Yeah. It takes a huge amount of education to be able to convince yourself of some of the absurdities that pass for common knowledge now. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, 
people will respect the person who says the emperor is not wearing any clothes, you know, and, and everybody knows, like, make no mistake, everybody knows that we're lying when we say, when we say, like, say the absurdities that passes, like, the, the, what we have to say now, which is, you know, everybody fucking knows that that dude in a dress is not a woman. Yeah. It, 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 like, it's not, it's not news to anybody, okay? Right. We know what we say, we're going through, we're, like, genuflecting. Anyway, so people respect people who who stand up for what they believe in and who put their necks on the line. Um, and um, you you lose respect, and we all have lost respect for each other when we, when we lie to each other. Mm. Anyway, um, and I forgot what what was the question that you had. The actually la- asked. La- <laughs> <laughs> what where where did the rest of us who are who maybe aren't as um, out there or maybe underground or like looking for their people? Um, you know, what, what advice do we have for them to, you know, find one another, I think. And well, yeah, I think, first of all, yes, we do need to find one another. And I, and I have been greatly, um, cheered on by the fact that there are people like Gord and you in the world, you know, that, that we can come together and discuss things and that we can also have friendly disagreements about things, which I, I value so much. In fact, one of my best friends, we've been friends for like 15 years, our friendship is built on hearty arguments that last. Yeah, I weeks love arguments. Months. <laughs> you know, he's a he's a a Randian and he's obsessed with Ayn Rand. We just argue and argue and argue, and that's what makes me better as an intellectual is my willingness to have arguments because I don't know where the weaknesses are until I until I fight with somebody. Um, and so yeah, the, yeah, we have to find each other, but also we cannot be afraid to disagree. And we oh, we need to try to bust out of the silos. Mm-hmm. And this is what I say, like, when, you know, when you talk online, you know, try not to talk in cliches, you know, to, or when you talk in public, if you have that opportunity, don't talk in cliches, don't signal to people, you're this or you're that, you know, try to speak. Be the, real. Yeah, speak the truth in the realest way that you can. Think through the cliches and try not to use cliched language. It will force you to be a better thinker and it will force people to listen to you. Do you know what I mean? So they're, you know, I've got purple hair. So I'm like, <laughs> when I go to speak, people are expecting a particular thing, right? But I am not going to sort of speak the language of what my tribe wants me to say. Hmm. My supposed tribe, anyway. I don't find these people to be kindred spirits or comrades or whatever. They throw me under the bus. <laughs> get the chance. Um, but you know, you can signal one thing and say another thing. You've got to do whatever you can to bust through and speak to people so that you force them to listen. Don't get comfortable by never getting pushed. Even if you like, even if you're a dissident, you can get comfortable, never get pushed and just be in your little silo of dissidents. You know, I was just at a conference yesterday um, speaking and somebody in the audience said like, oh, um, I was a sociologist for whatever, like 40 years in a university. And, and somebody said, well, that must have been really hard for you, given your ideas and how woke universities are. And he's like, well, what about you? Person asking, like, what, what about you? You used to be in a university. Why are you here in like a conservative think tank? You, you left, you know, you didn't try. You didn't try to fight that battle there. Now you're in your little comfortable surroundings with people who agree with you. Yeah. We can't give up on these fights. We can't you know, go and, and, and be too comfortable and complacent because we'll never win. We'll only ever talk to people who, who agree with us. Yeah. And that's not going to get us anywhere. Yeah. And you know what, this, this really hits home right now because I am literally um, writing an article about this and also living it. My daughters, um, we get an email like, I don't know, three, four weeks ago. That's like, 
what the sex ed curriculum is going to be. Oh, Oh my God, you guys. It's like, it's like some common sex assigned at birth include male, female, and intersex. Um, They teach them about (laughs) puberty blockers. Like one of the little videos, it has little, you know, blocks, lettered blocks that babies play with. And it says like, some identities include gender fluid, non-binary, queer. And I'm like, in blocks. They're teaching about puberty blockers, like as this just a safe thing to do to 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 hold off puberty. Um, so yeah, like really the belly of the beast. And so you can opt out of it. I'm opting my kids out, and I'm going to be talking to them about it. I think the, our kids are going to see some of this stuff and and have to be confronted with it. So it's really important, in my opinion, to inoculate them against it. But also I went in and talked to the sex ed teacher and a lot of this stuff was new this year, the most radical stuff. And she was like, what are puberty blockers? And I was like, yeah, they're like a pharmaceutical that is not like tested long term. They're not proven to be safe necessarily with kids. Like they just, they're just complete. And she's like, oh, I'm going to have to look into this. I'm not sure I'm going to teach this. I'm like, you know, like nobody. This woman live under a rock? Well, I mean, I think that she's like a, she's like a a school counselor. So it's like, you know, she's like, I think there's these bureaucrats at the top who are Mm -hmm. like basically trying to advance like a radical agenda. And then it just trickles down and everybody's like trying to be a good person and comply. But it's pushing up against people's like, I think I still think people have a pretty like intact sense of right and wrong. And they're just trying to navigate like, how do I not get ostracized by this radical class, but still like do what feels right to me. So I'm, I'm, I'm drawing attention to this, this curriculum. I'm trying to tell other parents about it. I'm going to be writing about it. Um, but it's just one of those things where it's just like, oh man, you you got to keep fighting the good fight. Like you gotta, you really just can't see this stuff and you gotta like point it out and, and not let things go in the wrong direction. Um, yeah. And, and just find your people, I think. And, and, and like, I do think people are inherently still pretty decent. There's a lot of very decent people out there who, um, who I think with too much complacency are getting their norms and morals hijacked basically in a way that they're like increasingly less comfortable with. And then eventually they just like reach a breaking point. Like I'm not doing this anymore. And I think we're just, we need to be there ready for them when they're ready to defect. And yeah. one last thing I'll say is um, these certain types of um, kind of authoritarian subcultures, um, they always end up turning on themselves. So that's another reason to not go along with the crowd because it's one of those things where you're like, you know, you're, you're compliant, but then they just push you a little further and a little further and a little further until you're way out of your comfort zone. And you're like, why did I go along with this? It's just, I mean, it's basically how cults work. They, you know, get you in on something that sounds appealing and then they just push you, push you, push you until you're way out of your comfort zone and doing something. You're like, how did I end up here? Um, And it just ends up being this like um, self cannibalizing thing. So that's another reason to just join us (laughs) or it gets that bad. Um, final thoughts. Anything? Uh, Gord, I've been talking too much. Go ahead. Well, on the original question, which was, you know, uh, what do we do about, you know, what's happened with the quote unquote left? Um, 
as it's pointed out, as pardon me, <clears throat> as it has been pointed out, these labels are all in flux, and people are questioning, you know, narratives, positions. You know, we're, we're being revealed what's actually going on um, by people's choices, by you know where people get slotted, by the discourse. And a lot of it's just it just feels like such a mirage at times. Like we just need to be clear-headed. And I, I would just submit to people, like, just be yourself at this point in the game. There's so many different people out there, like, and, and you know, we might be dispersed and we might not be, you know, geographically proximate, but I, I don't feel the need to, you know, be part of any defined team that's just not worked and it's not working and you know i'm i'm in the middle of this thing in canada trying to advocate for these guys in alberta and even the people on their side the conservatives have been keeping mum about it and not doing anything to help and the whole notion about like left right libertarian communist like it, none of it makes any sense anymore yeah. and we need we need to like move forward with like ideas that work and ideas that like have something to speak to the times and situations that we're in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe that's easy for me because I've always bounced around and I've never really had much of an allegiance to anything. Uh, maybe that's more difficult for others. Maybe that's more difficult for strident ideologues. Oh, well, I, I don't know what to tell you. But if but, not um, you, then who? You know, if you're not out there advocating for these guys, if I'm not out there advocating for my own kids, who who's going to do it for us? No. Well, no, exactly. Sometimes, you know, some sometimes you have to be that first mover, and you know, sometimes being that first mover gets you on Tucker Carlson. Sometimes that first mover uh, finds you with a sex ed teacher that doesn't know anything about puberty blockers. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with being a first mover. Other yeah. people are afraid to be that first mover, and and that's fine. Uh, leave them behind and do what you have to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. But like I said, as far as the original question on, like, you know, what's become of the left, I, I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> that's good. Well, well I'm with that. Thanks, guys. I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I wanted, I wanted to just add, um, I, I do actually care what's happened to the left because mm. I think it explains a lot of what's happened here. And I think at its core, what has happened to the left is that it's lost faith in humanity. Mm. Um, that, And I think that's what underlies this tendency toward behavior management. They have completely and totally imbibed uh, a kind of neoliberal outlook of managing people. So they, they've, you know, they might talk about anti-capitalism, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, what's the problem with capitalism? It's people. You're greedy. You're this. You're that. They've lost the idea that these are systems. It doesn't matter if you're good or bad. The system pushes your hand. Mm -hmm. That's like a core. Used to be like a core belief of of Marxism. Now it's it's highly highly moralized. And so you you have this extremely like you can call it neoliberal in the sense of like Foucauldian ideas of neoliberalism. But I like to call it post liberal because it signifies the death of that liberal enlightenment project, that liberal enlightenment belief in humanity, our ability to self-govern, our, our ability to be autonomous, to be reflective, that sort of thing. Now it's like a mess of psychology. They're just on, constantly, constantly talking about how human beings are just stupid, greedy, easily led astray. They, you can see this with like climate change. They're always saying we, 
we, we, we, we did this, we did that, we did that. Us, humanity, undifferentiated. We right. are to blame. Um, and so they've lost the understanding of systems. And so, well, in that kind of situation, if you don't believe in people, you don't believe in human rationality, human reason, the only thing that you can do is try to reform human beings before they, before society inevitably poisons them. Wow. So in my first book, I talk about this as a, a kind of reversal of what was the old right wing idea of social pathology, which led to eugenics, which is that society is a functioning organism and the problems are like outgrowths. Now the new left kind of flipped that around and they said, oh, well, society is sick and it infects the individual. Mm. Uh, so the idea is you got to go in to the individual in schools, that sort of thing. And you have to kind of give them the right ideas before society infects them and makes them sick. So adults are written off because they've been infected. Right. That's why they're so obsessed with your children. <laughs> That's the only way that they and the, and the only reform. They're talking about reforming society. They want to reform you. Yeah. You're the problem. Yeah. Right? This is where we get like I've written about coercive reform. That's what they do. They go straight to the law. And why do they want to change the law? To change you. Yeah. You are the carbon they want to reduce. <laughs> yes. Well, exactly. Right. The whole that is set up. scary. Yeah. Right. I'm going back to our point before, like you get punished for being poor. You get punished. The punishment for the systemic failure is the individual. And it's really just a class war. Um, but OK, so. Um, this was so wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. No, this is so wonderful. Thank you so much, both of you, for coming on. Um, this was fun. I think the beginning of a friendship. So thanks. Definitely. Thank you so much. Bye. Uh, cheers, uh, both Ashleys. Hey, Ashley, uh, Colby. Yeah. You're not. You're you're not pimping enough things. What people? You're not pimping yourself. You're not talking about wh where to find y'all. Where to where to find your you know other work? All right. Uh, um, where to find where to find Ashley Frawley's work? Like yeah, come on, yeah, this, let's, this let's is this is the books. promo section. All right, let's do a round of pimping. You can find uh, <laughs> uh you can find uh, the only thing I do is Doomer Optimism, which is this podcast. But you guys tell us where you can find your your stuff and what we where we should follow up with you. Ash. Right. Uh, uh, I I have a podcast called Based AF, all one word, B-A-S-E-D-A-F. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm at Ashley A. Frawley on all social media. Um, I, my most recent book just came out a month ago or a month and a half ago. It's called Significant Emotions. If you're interested in um, how mental health through kindly language convinces you that you're an idiot and why it's wrong, you can pick up that book. Yay. And then my previous book was uh, very similar, um, but looked at just one movement, the so-called happiness movement of the early 2000s. And uh, you can pick that up wherever you get books. Awesome. <laughs> Gord? Right. Um, I expound on the trucking business and on the uh, ongoing train wreck that is the country once known as Canada uh, at my Substack, autonomoustruckers.substack.com. Uh, my podcast is also hosted there as it is on various other platforms, uh, Voice of Gord. I write at Newsweek and Compact and a whole bunch of other different places. Just search my name. There's no C in it, M-A-G-I-L-L. And um, Ashley and I have plans for a dirty secret little conference maybe in the fall. And you should follow Doomer Optimism and or either of us online um, to get little tastes of it. Uh, who knows? Maybe Ashley Frawley will be on this side of the Atlantic for it too. And um, I'm, uh, for now, I'm on Twitter, at Gord McGill. This is my fifth account. 
Uh, it could be canceled at any time. So go to autonomoustruckers.substack.com instead. Oh, and Gord, do you want to mention the Give, Send, Go? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, as I mentioned before, uh, we have these political prisoners in Canada. Two of them got out last week. We have two more ongoing legal proceedings, uh, fuckery and all of that. Uh, go to Give, Send, Go slash Trudeau's political prisoners. And if you have a few extra bucks lying around, every dollar counts when you're fighting Leviathan and uh, punishment of your right to freedom of speech, which is in question in Canada now. Yeah. yeah. And I I would say that your work on this has had some sort of effect on helping these two guys get free and hopefully the other two. So um, congratulations. Yeah, That's a well really done. big deal, Gord. Oh, no, thank you. And uh, everyone, yeah, keep on listening to Doomer Optimism. It's got to be in like the top 100 podcasts on the internet, at least. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Top five, probably. Um, okay. <laughs> All right. Bye, guys. Thank you. Bye. Thank All you right. so much.